What is your conscience? Most of us have some sense for what we mean by that word, but we'd probably struggle to clearly explain what our conscience is designed to do and how it relates to objective right and wrong. Should we always obey our conscience? Can our conscience ever be incorrect? And what do we do when our conscience disagrees with another Christian's? In our interview today, I'm talking with J.D. Crowley and Andy Maselli, co-authors of Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, J.D. and Andy, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway podcast. Thanks. My pleasure. So the conscience is one of those topics that comes up, I think, fairly frequently in our conversations. It's not an unfamiliar concept. And yet my guess is that there are probably lots of different ways that people understand the conscience, different ways that we talk about it, some of them perhaps somewhat mutually exclusive or not always very compatible. And so um, you two have both spent a lot of time thinking about this topic of the conscience, thinking about it practically, but also thinking about it through the lens of the Bible. So maybe to start our conversation, what are some of the most common misconceptions, in your opinion, about the conscience that you've encountered? Uh, J.D., let's start with you. Yeah, uh, we really hit all these misconceptions head on right at the beginning of our book when we, um, in a positive way, laid out uh, truths or principles uh, from, from Scripture uh, and from wisdom about conscience. And so I'll go over some of those and, and you can see how they, they, they confront the misconceptions that come up. The first principle is that conscience is a priceless gift from God. I mean, what would we do without it? Andy uh, often compares it to living without the capacity to f- feel pain. And that would just kill us, you know, if we couldn't feel pain. Um, also, uh, um, we need to care for this gift, like every gift from God. We have to take care of it, and so that pushes back against this idea that we can neglect our conscience and just sort of let it do what it wants to do. Um, and then we we believe that conscience is a human capacity. It reflects the moral character character of God. Um, so it's a gift from God, and it reflects uh, re- reflects God in our heart. It's also really good at warning us about things that are actually right and wrong, black and white. It doesn't do gray areas very well. Um, Another important principle is uh, that no two Christians have the same rules in their conscience. Uh, Obviously, since uh, we have the same God and the same scripture and the same Holy Spirit, uh, there's a lot of overlap, but there are a lot of differences on the edges Uh, Otherwise, we wouldn't have chapters like Romans 14. Mm. Uh, And then this next principle should bring us all uh, to our knees and uh, make us humble before God and before others. And that is that nobody's conscience perfectly matches God's will. And that brings us to that MYOC principle. Therefore, we have to mind our own conscience. Uh, Your conscience is for you. The other guy's conscience is is for him, um, and then we come to a really serious, serious uh, principle, and that is that you can damage this gift from God either by telling it to be quiet when you think it's warning you correctly, 
or just overpacking it with uh, tons of rules that uh, that kind of break it and don't make it work right. Um, but there are two principles that are greater than all of them, and, and we, we really uh, emphasize these two principles all throughout the book, and that is simply obey your conscience. It's going to bring you blessing. It's not perfect, but it's not hopelessly flawed either. Uh, in fact, I just got a handwritten letter from a young mother who had been telling, uh, she'd been telling her conscience to be quiet about her growing alcohol dependence. And so she, she read conscience, she realized the danger she was in, she took action, and she began to experience the blessings of God in her life. It's a great story. So obey your conscience. And then there's one final principle, the one ring that rules them all, and that is that God is Lord of your conscience. And so if he wants you to adjust it, you must adjust it, calibrate it under his lordship. And that was Peter's situation when God showed him all those animals that Jews weren't supposed to eat, and God said, kill and eat. So what's he going to do? Well, he has to obey God uh, over his conscience. And so the three biggies are uh, God is the lord of your conscience, so be willing to calibrate it, obey your conscience. Uh, and uh, Number two, obey your conscience. And number three, uh, get along with people who have a different conscience rules on the edges of their conscience than you do. And in fact, what I've just shared is our book in two minutes. <laughs> and the rest of the book is simply Andy and JD kind of unpacking uh, all these amazing principles uh, from, from God's Word. Yeah, thanks so much, JD. And I think there are a number of those things that you mentioned that I want to dig into a little bit further as we keep keep talking today. Before we do that, though, Andy, anything you would add there about any other common misconceptions or myths or misunderstandings related to the conscience that you often encounter with other Christians? Probably the most common misconception in our culture is that, that kind of character cartoonish where you have a, an angel and a demon on your shoulder. Yeah. And they, they have conversations with you and it's like they're debating with your mind and you're debating with them. Um, and that resonates with a lot of people because we do have internal debates about right and wrong. Should I do this? No, you shouldn't do that. Uh, and I don't think that's how the Bible quite depicts it. Uh, but there's there's a reason that resonates, and that's that's what we try to develop in the book. Mm. Yeah, we, we often have this experience of, uh, it seems like internally there are these two sides, perhaps, uh, and, and we, maybe we would label the good side the conscience, uh, but we, we do have a sense of this internal struggle sometimes. So, so is that not related to the conscience, or is that just a, a misunderstanding of kind of how it's functioning? Well, the reason I'd say it doesn't quite match up with Scripture is sometimes our conscience functions in an evil way. It's possible to have an evil conscience. Hmm. So you shouldn't assume that just because there's a voice in your head telling you it's okay to do that, that that's the voice of God. Uh, so we have to recognize our conscience can be evil, it can be broken, it can be misleading, and part of Christian maturity is recognizing that and then taking steps to to help our conscience mature and to be more aligned with what's right, what's true. Hmm. So Andy, let's jump in then to what Scripture does actually positively say about the conscience, how it yeah. speaks to this issue. Uh, where do we see Scripture talk about the conscience? Well, the word conscience occurs only in the New Testament. There's not a Greek word for conscience. The closest corollary would be like the, the Hebrew word for heart. Um, like David's heart smote him. 
in my King James Version background. Mm. David's heart smote him. <laughs> it's his conscience working, I think. Uh, but in, in general, uh, it's it's a word that occurs about 30 times in the New Testament, most of it in Paul's writings. The most concentrated section is 1 Corinthians 9 and 10 and 11 in there. No, 8, 9, and 10. Got it wrong there. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. And when I, when J.D. and I tried to, to define this term, what we, we did is just carefully look at every time the Bible uses the word or the concept and then try to develop a definition from that. It's like we would do with any word. Like, um, like take the word barbell. How, what is a barbell? Let's you say, say that because there's barbells standing up against the wall behind you right now. <laughs> That's why I just looked around for a word. <laughs> so uh, if, if you didn't know what a barbell was, but you had 50 sentences with the word barbell in it, you could probably figure it out. So mm-hmm. it, you figure out, just look at the verbs that go with it. So you, what do you do with the barbell? You, you lift it, you drop it, you buy it, you store it, you don't bend it, or if you do, it's unusual. That's, maybe you clean it, that, that sort of thing. And then, and then uh, what are the adjectives, the words that describe it? You know, it could be hard and round and long and heavy, uh, etc. So you figure out what, what can this thing be, uh, what does it do, what do people do with it? And you develop a definition. Well, same thing with conscience. When you look at how Scripture talks about it, uh, you see positively it can be fundamentally two different things. It can be good in the sense of blameless or clear, and then it can be cleansed, like it was dirty and then someone cleansed it. So a good conscience and a cleansed conscience. And then negatively, it can be weak or wounded or defiled or encouraged or emboldened to sin, or evil, or seared, as with a hot iron. Those are six descriptions of, of negatively of what the conscience is. And you ask, well, all right, so that's what it is, uh, or what it can be. What does it do? And there are three actions in the New Testament that the conscience does. It can bear witness. It can testify or confirm. And second, it can judge. It can try to determine another person's freedom. It's really good at judging. And then a third, it can lead you to act in a certain way. That's what Romans 2 and 13 teach. Your conscience can lead you to, to submit to the authorities, for example. Or in 1 Corinthians 10, it can lead you to not bother asking where your meat came from. So you put all that together. You know, how do you define this word? And our best attempt is something like this. It, the conscience is your consciousness, your sense, your awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. And we say it that way because the conscience produces different results for people based on different moral standards. Simply because your conscience is leading you to think or do a certain thing doesn't mean that's what God thinks. Mm. Uh, just recognizing that is cr- critical. So you're kind of you're putting some distance between what is objectively right and wrong uh, and your awareness or your understanding of what that what that would be, and that's where the conscience comes in. Right. So, so your conscience functions like this guide or this monitor, this witness, this judge. And sometimes it's condemning you when it shouldn't. And other times it's not condemning you when it should. Mm. For example, uh, it's very common in our culture for people with a supposed clear conscience to take anti-biblical views on sexuality or abortion or whatever you name the issue but in, in their mind it's a civil rights issue they think this is this is what we need to do uh, for the sake of conscience 
But what's, what's driving that, I think, is a conscience that's not aligned with Scripture. Hmm. And I think sometimes Christians um, can maybe assume that behind uh, people who would make those kinds of decisions or hold those kinds of positions, there's some kind of uh, guilty conscience down deep inside that they know is there, and yet they're just kind of suppressing it. But it sounds like you're saying that there could be situations when their conscience isn't isn't functioning properly, so they might not feel that level of conviction or uh, a moral transgression. JD, have you have you seen that at play um, in your own conversations with with unbelievers and believers? Yeah, sure. We're we're not all aware uh, of, of what's right and wrong. For one thing, uh, unbelievers have a conscience. Uh, it's surprisingly similar to the conscience of uh, just pretty much everyone else in the world on the big issues. Uh, but uh, as uh, Andy said, um, uh, we um, there, there are things missing from their conscience, just like there are things missing from our conscience. It's not that much different. Uh, and when we share the gospel and when we uh, talk to our neighbors, we can't just assume that they have the same uh, uh, standards of right and wrong as uh, we do as Christians. Uh, and it, it matters because when we, if we preach against sin, we might get to this later, but when we preach against sin uh, in a cross-cultural context, uh, we may uh, preach against the sin that's not even actually considered a sin in, in their uh, culture. And so we miss having that confirmation of their conscience inside of them saying, yes, what this person is saying is correct. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a difficult, uh, difficult situation. Yeah. Yeah. You raise that cross-cultural dynamic that comes into play, just culture in general and uh, background and the way someone was raised, that's all going to feed into these conversations about our conscience. And I, I want to get into that. Um, but maybe before we go there, uh, Andy, you used the word a few minutes ago about the importance of calibrating our conscience, uh, of sort of bringing it into line with uh, scriptural truth. I think that's a, that's a kind of category that maybe would be somewhat new to a lot of Christians. We kind of think that conscience is just, it's there. It probably is a good thing from God. We might accept that. But the thought of needing to calibrate it uh, one way or another might be a little bit odd. So why do you use that word calibrate in particular? Sure. The, the metaphor is regarding what you do with an instrument that's not functioning according to its standard properly. So I'm looking at my computer right now. It says it's 9.17 a.m. I'm just taking, this isn't a MacBook. I'm, I'm taking Apple's word for it. That's what time it is. But it's possible that it's off by like 10 seconds or 20 seconds. I don't know. Uh, this morning I stepped on a scale. I won't tell you what it said. But I was just <laughs> assuming the scale was accurate. The scale could be off. Uh, so to calibrating just means you know, get make whatever a tool you're using function correctly according to a standard. And the place where we got this is actually from the book of Acts. You know, J.D. Uh, is the one who pointed this out to me first. Would you be willing to, to uh, share that story, J.D., from, from Acts? Uh, the one about which one? There's so many stories. The one with Peter Acts, and the vision. Oh, sure. Yeah, so that, that, that was... Uh, um, so here was Peter praying up on the top of the roof, and uh, he didn't know it, but in a few minutes there would be a knock at his door, and there would be four or three or four Gentiles there wanting to come in and meet him. Uh, and God gave him, you know, that he sent the tablecloth down with with uh, animals that he could not 
uh, eat uh, in good conscience mm. as a as a good Jewish man, and he was a good Jewish man. Um, and then came the uh, horrible commandment from God: kill and eat. And he his conscience uh, just felt a sense of revulsion. Uh, and he basically said no the first time. It happened again, second time, third time. And soon after that was a knock on the door. And by uh, God's grace, and Peter's my hero in this, by God's grace, Peter connected uh, the, the, the coming of those Gentiles uh, downstairs and the, uh, the strange vision that he just had and the commandments from God. And he calibrated his conscience in a matter of 10 minutes. Mm. And he he let the he he let the for the first time in his life he let Gentiles into his house. It was a great miracle. Now, of course, many years later he he had an, you know he kind of forgot some of these principles, and they had that problem with Paul uh, uh, when when he uh, didn't want to eat with the uh, gen, the Gentiles in Antioch out of pressure from people from um, uh, from Jerusalem. But here he. Uh, obeyed God and opened the door to the Gentiles. Mm. Well, that's such an interesting Bible story. Uh, I think it's often easy to view that that change uh, in conscience uh, as a theological kind of realization that Peter had. So God kind of revealed this theological truth to him, and then there was just this intellectual kind of decision, okay, that changes things. But uh, it seems like you're getting at there's maybe more to it than just a pure intellectual realization there there's something maybe a little bit more significant happening there yeah, does that I would resonate say, with you i'd say it's it's much more than an intellectual change there so imagine you grow up your entire life with the jewish laws uh, eating eating these 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 non-kosher foods would be revolting disgusting it'd be like someone from america eating his neighbor's dog i know in cambodia that's a different thing but in america uh, that that to us, we think, don't, you don't do that. That's, that's what it viscerally would have felt like to someone like Peter. So this isn't just an intellectual thing. This is emotional. This is everything about his old background and upbringing going against it. Mm. And what I, what I think is interesting is this is a, unusual in how quickly Peter calibrates for something so significant. For most of us, we don't have these grand visions directly from God about you need to change your your. your your view of this particular issue. For most of us, it takes time. So I think pastorally, we shouldn't rush this. We should give people time to calibrate their consciences with the truth of God's word, the truth outside God's word, and in community with God's people. Hmm. Maybe this is an unfair question to ask, but it seems like the example of Peter is a conscience that was uh, in light of uh, the coming of Jesus and the new covenant, it was too sensitive to something that it didn't need to be sensitive about. And then on the other hand, I think we're probably more familiar today in our culture with the idea of a conscience being seared, and maybe it's not sensitive enough to something that we should be uh, feeling feeling bad about. Uh, what do you think is the bigger problem as you look at the the evangelical church in America, and maybe even to broaden it out around the world? Is there one of those tendencies that seems dominant uh, over the other one, or do you think it's sort of a mix of both of those dynamics? Well, in, Andy and I listened to a lot of sermons and read a lot of things in our research 
for this book. And after most of the sermons, I went away with the feeling that the person who preached that felt like the greatest danger uh, to the American church is legalism. So that would be the side that Peter was on, where he had his conscience had all these things in uh, uh, in it. Uh, uh, his conscience was doing double, triple duty. Um, uh, but when you look at how Scripture handles the concept of conscience, it's, it, Paul makes it very clear in Romans 14 that there's a cliff on the right, that's legalism, and there's a cliff on the left, and that's antinomianism, which is what you mentioned, a seared conscience, or, or yeah, not listening to your conscience. Uh, and uh, Scripture gives dire warnings for both of those. Oh. Uh, it it it's pronounces anathema on the legalism, uh, and it says uh, people who live certain kinds of lives cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So yeah, you you you're you're touching something very important there. Mm. So, so another prominent area where the conscience comes uh, to the fore and is often invoked even in conversations uh, is when we come to disputable matters or disagreements with other Christians. Uh, Andy, how should we think about the conscience in relation to the different opinions and standards that Christians often have related to a whole host of issues? Many of them, you know, for the individual Christian, it feels like a moral black and white issue. Um, so maybe actually as a first question, how do we distinguish between a conscience issue and a clear moral issue? Right. Well, what I've found helpful is to start with, with a text like Romans 14 and work out from there, uh, rather than starting with the idea of triage and trying to show that. So let me just start there and then work out. So in Romans 14, uh, Paul mentions three matters of dispute, three disputable matters, three matters of conscience. Uh, people call them different things, but uh, the three issues are food and holy days and wine. In, the, in Romans 14, the strong, which I'd say are the theologically correct, so they are mostly Gentile Christians in the context of Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, they eat all kinds of food, they don't make distinction among days, and they drink they drink wine. Now, this isn't the alcohol issue. There's not like modern day issues at all. This is talking about with reference to the Jewish laws. And then the, the weak, the theologically incorrect but not heretical group, mostly Jewish Christians would eat only vegetables. They valued some days more than others and they abstained from wine. And as Paul works through that issue with these folks uh, in, in, in Rome, he argues not primarily, y'all need to change your views and all hold this view. Instead, he focuses on how you can love each other while still holding your views. Hmm. So when you hear him talk that way, that sounds so much different than, say, 1 Corinthians 15, where, you know, here's the gospel, and this, this is the only right way to think about it. Uh, here, in Romans 14, there is a, a more theologically correct way to think about these issues, but, but he's more concerned with, here's how to love each other in your differences. Hmm. So, so we're... we're when we read the Bible, we try to put all this together, and that's where the idea of triage comes from. Some true things are more important than others. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls the gospel of first importance, which implies that there are other truths that are not of first importance. So in this triage model, first importance are the things that, that all Christians must affirm and not deny. They are the essentials, the most significant, the things that, that are, we're most unified around. 
And then there are other truths that aren't that important, but still important. And there are different ways to, to carve this up. Gavin Ortland just wrote a book for Crossway where he has four or so levels. Uh, Al Mohler's written an article where he has three levels. Uh, it's not critical that we do, we make a, a clear uh, make a clear position on how to how to divide that up. But what is important is to recognize levels of importance. Mm. So uh, there's a you could say there's a secondary level of things like what's your view on on God's sovereignty and salvation, or church polity, or the role of men and women in the church and the home, and etc. I'd say those are pretty important, but not, but not first level. And then there are other issues that are still important, but they're not they're not as important as the, as that second level I just mentioned. And I think that the the type of issues Paul's talking about in First Corinthians fourteen would be like that, like a tertiary level of it's important, but not nearly as important as these other things. And one one thing I've over over the last five years or so, if people have read our book, I've been a little discouraged with how some people have used it to basically trivialize anything that's not a first level issue, as if oh that's not that's not a first important, so it doesn't matter. All truth matters, mm. so it's just some matters more than others. Yeah. Well, how does what you just said a couple minutes ago about the the way that Paul in I think Romans 14 in particular does does seem to focus more on just calling the the believers on the two different sides of the of the issue to love one another well he doesn't seem to be as focused on this idea of calibrating the conscience of saying hey you weak brothers who who feel your conscience uh, condemn you for certain things that aren't actually uh, correct you should you should grow in that you should be strengthened in that uh, why would you say he he emphasizes the love more? Yeah, just uh, I don't think Paul's neutral about whether a believer should be weak or strong in conscience. I mean, the very terms "strong" and "weak" suggest that a strong conscience is more desirable than a weak one on a particular issue. But Paul's point in Romans fourteen is that a strong, a person who is strong in faith, a person with a strong conscience, does not necessarily please God more than the weak in faith. So his burden in that passage is not to eliminate such differences, but to glorify God by loving others who differ. So I, I would I would summarize Romans uh, 14.1 through 15.13 in four headings. So for 14.1 to 12, I, th I think the main idea is welcome one another. That's his point. And then in 14.13 to 23, he's exhorting strong Christians, don't cause your brother or sister to stumble. And then 15, 1 to 6, he's saying strong Christians build up your brother or sister. And then in 15, 7 to 13, he's saying welcome one another to the glory of God, to, to glorify God. So that, I think, is the overall force of these exhortations about quarreling over disputable matters. Mm. J.D., uh, one of the trickiest things in this whole conversation is how often uh, we struggle to... Uh, clearly identify when an issue is a, a disputable matter, to use that term that's already been thrown out, is a tertiary issue that we can disagree on to some extent that isn't of first importance. And, and in particular, you've seen this in your cross-cultural work, you, you're a missionary in Cambodia. Uh, how have you seen these um, different cultural backgrounds and contexts impact the way that people uh, view certain ethical questions or moral issues? Yeah, um, so 
conscience issues, conscience problems uh, are uh, we. In fact, Andy and I think that a very high percentage of con- of, of conflicts in a local church in America uh, come from people not understanding their own conscience and how it works, and not understanding what Romans fourteen says, how they should uh, relate to people who have uh, who who have different. Uh, rules at, on the edges of their conscience. Don't forget that the, the core of, uh, of of the conscience of Christians. I would say I would guess that there's probably 95% agreement on the big issues. It's just on the edges. Uh, the fact is that 95% is all that you know. We, we, we sometimes we we uh, don't speak quite accurately. We say, well, that's just a conscience issue. But actually, any issue that's in our conscience, including the big things, don't steal, don't, you know, believe God, uh, rules like that are in our conscience as well. In fact, that, those are the, those are the uh, matters that should be in our conscience because conscience tends to want to adjudicate either guilty or not guilty, right or wrong. It doesn't do a gray area very well. But if we have these problems in our church, imagine how those problems are complicated when we cross into another culture. Uh, but yeah, 27 years ago, I, had, I came to Cambodia. I was quite ignorant about conscience and how it worked, uh, my conscience and the conscience of the people that I was working with here. Um, one of my, I think one of the most revealing stories, it's a little bit embarrassing for me, is when I planted a mango tree in my yard in Cambodia, uh, here in Cambodia about... Uh, 15 years ago and uh, on the fourth year when it's supposed to have some fruit uh, it had fruit I was so excited three uh, three mangoes green mangoes were there and and I couldn't wait to eat them Uh, but I never never ate them because a local friend of mine who was doing some concrete work for me he he picked them and ate them <laughs> and, I, and, and worse worse yet when I talked to him about it and I wasn't really hard on him just a little bit hard on him <laughs> uh, he seemed completely without remorse he just smiled a big smile he says yeah I ate him yeah and so you know what obviously he has a seared conscience but there was actually a less sinister explanation and he, he, he didn't feel pangs of conscience because in his culture what he did wasn't wrong it wasn't theft and in fact in most majority world cultures, it isn't theft. And in fact, in the Old Testament biblical culture, it wasn't theft either, right? Remember uh, in Deuteronomy and also uh, Luke 6, when Jesus and his disciples were going through a, a grain f- a field of grain. So, what he, okay, get this. The real sin in that situation was my stinginess for not being willing to very gladly share my mangoes uh, with my friend, because in the majority world, the most important thing about food is that you have to share it. Mm. So I, I had to adjust my conscience in two areas. One, I had to uh, calibrate my inner moral compass uh, by adding the category of don't be stingy toward neighbors when it comes to food. Okay, that, that wasn't, uh, I doubt that that's, in, that's even on the radar of the conscience of most people uh, in America. Um, And secondly, I had to adjust my conscience concerning theft because in Cambodia, if you're if you're taking a shortcut through somebody's orchard and you, it's okay to pick one or two fruit. You can't harvest and take it to the market and sell it, but you can you can do that. Uh, So um, and so both of us, you know, I saw his. uh, I saw what was clearly 
in my conscience, my conscience said, thou shalt not steal, and I, I, I believe that this was a, a theft of my mangoes. Uh, I saw the wrong that his conscience did, did, didn't even show up on his conscience, and he saw the wrong that didn't even show up on my conscience. Mm -hmm. So that's the way it is in these cross-cultural situations. And what if I, what if I had uh, said, this is a great opportunity to share the gospel because I'm going to really, I'm going to use this theft here to really help him see that he's a sinner who needs Jesus. And, and I, I said, this is why you need Jesus, because you, of stealing. His conscience would not confirm at all my message. Mm -hmm. And the fact is you want people's conscience to say, yes, what this person is saying is true. Uh, but it wouldn't have done that uh, had I, had, I uh, had that attitude toward him. So would you both say that there's a certain sense in which our consciences then are culturally conditional, where our conscience settings might uh, be tied to where we're actually living and ministering and the people that we're around? J.D., what would you say to that? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, uh, our God gave us a cult. God gave us a conscience, uh, and uh, as we grow up in our families, uh, as we grow up in our churches, as we grow up in our whatever situation we grow up in, uh, rules uh, get get added to that conscience. Some some of which ought to be there, uh, and some of which ought not be there. Uh, and so, this is why calibration is such an important thing for a Christian. Uh, because we want to make sure as, as much as possible uh, that, that our conscience reflects the will of God. Uh, and uh, we pray to that end. We just say, God, please, may my conscience reflect your holy will. Uh, and may I listen to my conscience. And where it doesn't reflect your holy will, may I adjust it to, to, to match your will. J.D., I don't know if you remember this, but when I first heard you speak on the conscience, it was at a conference in 2011 or 12, or I forget when it was. And you told a story about basically customs about walking and stepping over people's legs. Remember that? Uh, t tell that story. That's, that really helped me understand this. Well, it, it, yeah. So go, going back to the mango story, uh, when I go back to the States, if, so if I do adjust my conscience here in Cambodia, uh, when I go back to the States, I have to have another set of guidelines in the States. And so it even, uh, it, it's even uh, culturally um, adjusted in that way. So um, I had lived here so long that I had uh, cha changed my conscience concerning certain matters of uh, uh, manners, just good manners. Over here, you never step over uh, someone's legs or actually, or anything, any body part of his. It's a terror. It's like spitting in his face. Mm. So when I went back, to the states, uh, I would uh, be I, I would be at a potluck or something, and I'd want to uh, get up and get some more food. And somebody had his legs on the coffee table, so I just stood there, you know, because anybody with any sense of uh, polite manners would uh, move his legs back so that I could pass by. But uh, of course, uh, he had no idea that why I was standing there, and I hadn't I had forgotten why he wasn't pulling his legs back so that I could. Uh, I could uh, move to the food table. And so it, it, my, I started thinking about why my conscience, it felt like a conscience thing. I couldn't do it. I couldn't step over his legs. Uh, why is my conscience, uh, uh, why does it even care about matters of manners? And should it even care? 
And I came to the conclusion, uh, and, I, and Andy has too, that probably no, the, our conscience is not supposed to do double, triple, quadruple duty. Uh, we've seen that, uh, that conscience nowadays even uh, warns us about hygiene and things like that. Well, should it? Uh, I, I say, uh, and Andy and I think that the conscience should, as much as possible, be reserved for matters of true right and wrong. And if we can calibrate our conscience to that end, that, that we'll be blessed. Mm. So it's easy for us, I think, to, uh, in an American context, to hear a story like that uh, about stepping over someone's legs. And we kind of, we feel a distance from that. We don't resonate with that. So it kind of feels easy to say, oh, yeah, that's clearly a conscience issue, uh, a disputable issue that we can, we can kind of uh, leave aside. I think if we were to come closer to home, though, there's probably other issues in an American context that are more, uh, there might be stronger personal feelings about. Um, and one example of that would be maybe drinking alcohol. There's a certain, there's a certain history uh, in American Christianity uh, with certain uh, denominations and groups that would feel very strongly that drinking alcohol is, is, um, is uh, unwise at best and sinful you know, at worst. So Andy, I wonder if you could speak to that. What would you say to someone who is listening right now who would say, I, I see what Scripture teaches, say, for example, on the issue of alcohol. I see that it doesn't clearly condemn drinking alcohol, and yet I feel this conscience uh, pang, and I, I feel like I can't bring myself to do that. Should they uh, be okay with that and be comfortable with that, or is that something that they would want to, to grow in? So I'd like to start by just making it clear that the situation in Romans 14 is not parallel to modern debates about whether we may drink alcoholic beverages. So the Roman Christians whom Paul is addressing were divided specifically about whether to continue observing Jewish traditions about drinking. So the Mosaic law allows God's people to drink wine, but sometimes Jews who lived in pagan cultures refuse to drink wine to avoid ritual contamination. Think of Daniel chapter 1 when they're in captivity with, under Nebuchadnezzar. So I think it's important to, to just make it clear that uh, when people talk about the weaker brother and sisters and causing someone to stumble um, because someone might have a weakness for alcohol, that's not the way that Romans 14 is talking about. The weakness is a theological weakness. Mm, yeah. Uh, now, can those are there any principles that apply to how we then address this? Of course. So if, if I have a brother or sister who has had a, a, a history of drunkenness and now mm-hmm. is completely avoiding alcohol because they know uh, they're weak there, I'm not going to drink in front of them and I'm not going to encourage them to drink. That's just common sense. Uh, so I, basically I'd argue Christians have freedom here, but they need to love each other and how they exercise that freedom. Hmm. But speak to the Christian, though, who um, he, him or herself feels this conscience issue, not because of a history of um, alcohol abuse, but just because they were, gro- they were raised in a church where everyone believed that it was wrong to drink alcohol. And uh, how should they think about that, that conviction that they feel deeply in their heart and, and move forward with that? I'd point here to the chancellor of my school and pastor emeritus of my church, John Piper. So he's a teetotaler. Uh, and by conviction, and when he came to our, our church in 1980, I think, he saw that in our church covenant that members covenant together not to drink alcohol. That's to be a member, 
you had to agree to that. And he, as a teetotaler, recognized that that's, that's going beyond what the Bible says, even though he has his long list of reasons why it would be unwise, et cetera, et cetera. But he recognized that's, that's going beyond the Bible. So he led the church over a period of years to remove that from the church covenant. I think that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, to, so you can, he can have a conviction why he thinks it's unwise while recognizing Christians can disagree on that. So if someone has uh, a conscience that's niggling at them, like, I just couldn't do that, I would tell them, you don't need to worry about, about like, you don't have to drink to be a faithful Christian. Just don't drink. Like, follow your conscience here. Uh, I, I would not in any way see that as a pressing issue to try to get someone to change their mind on that. Mm. Uh, there's so many more important things. So I just say, be careful that you don't judge others who do drink without being drunk. So that might be the issue they need to work on. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't in any way feel pressure to change their minds on what they think about that so that they then partake. Yeah. And that gets back to that acronym that you threw out earlier, JD, the MYOC, Mind Your Own Conscience. Uh, so I guess I wonder, unpack that a little bit more. Does that does that essentially mean we shouldn't be talking about, we should avoid discussing these di- disputable issues as much as possible? Actually, we, uh, Andy and I, believe that it's absolutely okay to discuss all these things. Uh, they're interesting. Uh, some of them are, some of them are matters of great importance. So most of them are, even though they're they're third level matters. They're very important. Yeah, talk about them uh, with people. Uh, but the principle in Romans 14 is accept people not in order uh, to to convince them of uh, your argument or your side or try to get them to to do uh, to to live their life according to your own conscience. It's just amazing to me that Paul says uh, to the to the vegetarians in uh, in Rome uh, who didn't have enough confidence in their heart and their conscience to, to, to eat meat. He basically, he said to them, you can be vegetarians the rest of your life. He wasn't going to try to convince them not to be. But he said, just don't judge those who eat meat. And he said to the vegetarians of something similar, yeah, go ahead, use this, uh, this freedom that you have. Just don't look down on and despise those who, uh, who, uh, who are vegetarians, who have this restriction. So here's how this looks in, in my household. I have four daughters, 13, 10, 9, and 4. And they have lots of friends in our church who have different rules, different family rules on various issues. Mm. And they're starting to ask questions regularly. Why, why is that family allowed to do this? And we aren't, or that sort of thing. And the way that we try to explain it is we have different family rules, different family standards. Your job as a child is to obey Ephesians 6, 1. Obey your, your parents and the Lord. And when you get to uh, run, be part of your own household there and, and, and shepherd your own children, you can change those rules. Uh, we're, we're, we're trying to guide you and, and help you uh, mature as people who love Jesus. And we have some rules that are in addition to Scripture. Like, we'd like you to wash your hands before you, have, before you eat dinner. When you come into the home, we'd like you to take off your shoes. After you wake up in the morning, we'd like you to make your bed. Stuff like that, where they might have friends where their families don't require those same things. And that, well, well why don't they have to do it? We have to do it. And uh, if we can over and over and over uh, teach these distinctions between what God requires of all people and what God requires of you in this circumstance, I think that can help our children even understand the difference in, in how conscience works.
Mm. Well, and Andy, uh, on to that point, it seems like some of those rules that you laid out uh, for your family are are kind of just practical, um, yeah, practical rules or ideas to help the household run eff- efficiently and effectively. It seems like it might get a little bit trickier when it comes to uh, standards or rules or practices that are uh, intended to be a direct application of a biblical principle. So say a principle of we want to remain pure in our thoughts and our actions, and that might then lead a family to set up a rule about what kinds of movies that their kids would watch or that they themselves would watch. Um, so have you? Those can sometimes, I think, feel a little bit more uh, personal. They can feel a little bit more uh, black and white, perhaps, in our minds because they feel directly connected to a scriptural principle, a moral principle in the Bible. So I, I guess uh, as maybe a last question for both of you, do you ever feel that temptation towards um, maybe trying to impress your convictions, your conscience convictions about something like that on other Christians? And and how do you how do you stop yourself from doing that? And and remember that these are uh, convictions that that you're called to, but not necessarily other other people. JD, would you mind starting? Well, we're back to MYOC, mind your own conscience. Uh, other people have their conscience. Uh, you have yours. Um, and because uh, what, what, when a person realizes that his own conscience standards and rules and commandments uh, don't match God's perfect will completely, then we begin to humble ourselves before others. And we don't try to insist that other people have the same rules that we do. Uh, so that's one answer, Andy. Well, this is really practical in our household right now. It's questions about, you know, how short can our shorts be and how tight can our shirts be and what movies can we watch and all that. And, and we just try to tell our kids, here's what mom and dad think is best for us. Now, if you have friends who love Jesus and their families have different standards, don't judge them. Uh, we're, they're going to stand before God. We're going to stand before God. Uh, and let's... This is really hard for my girls. They're, they still ask questions about it regularly, uh, and that's why this is a is something we have to talk about a lot because it's not like a learn a lesson once and you got it for a lot for life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we have to explain to our kids we're trying our best to apply what God has said, and maybe we're stricter than necessary. Maybe we're looser. We're just trying to do our best, and your job is to follow your parents uh, at this point. And and when you're a parent, you can. You can make your call there. So that's that's how we try to wrestle with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Andy and JD, thank you so much for taking some time today to talk with us about this important topic. I think that it does end up, as you think about the conscience, think about these kinds of uh, decisions that we have to make, uh, the way that we feel about certain things. It starts to apply to a whole host of issues that we face in our lives every single day. Uh, but we appreciate your wisdom on this issue. Our pleasure. Thank you. That was J.D. Crowley and Andy Nacelli on understanding our consciences through the lens of Scripture. For more, be sure to check out their book with Crossway, Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode and appreciate the show, would you leave us a review? That helps us spread the word. 
Crosswhy is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.